This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. If you are a first-time listener here at 88.7 or live streaming through WAGP.net, we're so glad that you can be with us. For the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Sometimes there's a particular passage or a theological issue or challenge in evangelism or family that you would like some help with. And if we can, by God's grace, we will. All you need to do, again, pick up the phone. The 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. When you call in, some people don't want to go on the air live. Uh, they're just more comfortable dictating their questions, so we're happy to receive it however you'd like to give it. Well, with that said, uh, Walter, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. Yes, sir. Good morning, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Thomas out of Bloomingdale, Georgia. He writes, for those called in ministry into the ministry of pastor later in life, specifically in their 30s and 40s, and struggle with continuing education because of the debt we are currently paying off, are there any respected colleges that are affordable and to what and what degree level do you believe a pastor should have in order to be an option for a senior pastor position? Well, it's a good question. Uh, let me just say, I think you're wise trying to pay off the debt you have, and I think it would be a mistake to potentially just incur more debt without even having your college debt removed or other graduate work that you may have done. With that said, there's nothing technically, biblically, that requires someone to go to seminary. It certainly doesn't hurt. It's a way to sharpen your sword. You take three or four years out of your life, uh, and you study hard, you work hard. Maybe you have an opportunity to, uh, on some level, learn the original languages, and that can go a long way for the next 30 or 40 years if God gives that to you. Uh, but understand seminaries are rather a new thing in the history of the church None of the Protestant reformers went to, quote-unquote, a seminary. Uh, most of those men were self-educated. Uh, Calvin and Luther taught themselves Hebrew and Greek. Uh, I think that would be challenging, at least for me. Uh, but nonetheless, that's what they did. And what is qualified biblically are here in 1 Timothy 3, an overseer must then be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So able to teach. That refers to your ability to communicate Scripture. And that's what James is looking at when he says, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you'll incur a stricter judgment. So while there is indeed the gift of teaching, there is a formal office of teaching in fact, when Paul lists the equipping gifts in the book of Ephesians, the fifth chapter, actually the fourth chapter, 
uh, he reminds us of some leadership gifts, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets. Here, these first two at the top of the list are not the office of apostle or the office of prophet, but he's referring to those gifts, some as apostles, some as prophets, some of as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. It's interesting, this verse is connected with a number of ands in the English Bible, but the last and between pastor and teacher is a different kind of and connecting those two words. So maybe in modern writing, we'd say pastor slash teacher, because while not all teachers are pastors, pastors are to be teachers of the word. They're to be able to teach, again, what Paul just told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So when you consider this whole uh, avenue of education, first you want to make sure, A, that you're qualified in terms of these character qualifications. B, you want to make sure that you're gifted. Uh, If God hasn't given you a speaking gift in your wanting to be a pastor, at least a senior pastor, and so there are different kinds of pastors, and it's interesting that when Jesus addresses the seven angeloi, the angels, he addresses in Revelation 2 and 3, he is addressing not literal angels, but people. Oftentimes in Scripture, people are called angels. The word angelos in the plural angeloi just means messenger. And so John the Baptist is called an angel, not a literal angel, but he's God's messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. His disciples are called angels, plural, and in a lot of languages, that's how they translate it, and they leave it up to the reader to discern what's in view, what's uh, being looked at contextually. In most English Bibles, we don't always translate it that way. We just say, well, John's messenger or John's disciples or whatever. So... Uh, In terms of cost, again, it's not required that you go to seminary. What's required is that you're able... Look, I I know men who have gotten seminary degrees, some even PhDs, but they're either A, not qualified, or B, not gifted to teach. So that's a big, big investment of time if God hasn't equipped you on that level. Uh, The largest Protestant denomination in the United States is the Southern Baptists, Uh, Every church is autonomous, but the convention exists for one reason, and that's to accumulate funds to uh, pool resources to accomplish things that they couldn't necessarily do alone as a local church, and so missions and seminaries and so forth. Um, But as you look at the 50,000 approximately Southern Baptist churches, about 80% of the pastors have never been to seminary. Does that mean they're disqualified? By no means. Now, there are certainly men who are in the pulpit who shouldn't be there. And so I would just say to you, um, there may be some things that you can do on your own. One resource for you, I would say, is the Institute of Biblical Studies. And we've actually had a number of pastors over the years who have taken those courses. I teach those doctrinal courses. There's pneumatology, eschatology, soteriology, Christology, angelology, pneumatology, uh, ology means the study of or the thought of. Uh, eschatology, escat means end, and so eschatology means the study of the end or the study of last things or end, end times, we might say. And so these are all, these terms are based on Greek words found in the New Testament, but we teach those courses on a master's level. 
And so uh, you might want to consider taking those. You want to be grounded in some major theological fields. And so there's real merit, I think, in studying theology systematically. While we preach the Bible exegetically, we will often study the Bible systematically in terms of its theology. So if I wanted to prove that the Holy Spirit was both God and a person— uh, and that would be under the realm of pneumatology, pneumatos spirit, and so the study of this Holy Spirit, uh, then I would uh, systematically go through the New and the Old Testaments to see what God revealed about the Holy Spirit, and I'd put all those passages together to come up with a clear theology in view. So a systematic theology of major topics would be essential. You could do a lot of those on your own, some people teach themselves Hebrew and Greek, very challenging. Certainly there are, you know, courses that you can take online. Uh, for me, having had uh, four years of Greek and three years of Hebrew, I think it would be very, very difficult uh, to get the same kind of education than if you're in a classroom and you're able to ask teacher the teacher questions and so forth. But some have done it, and some have done it well. So a lot, I suppose, depends on the individual. But I would just say, Thomas from Georgia, don't go into any more debt. Pay off the debt you have and make sure that you're qualified in terms of the character issues and the gifting issues and the developmental issues. In other words, someone might even have a call from God to be a pastor teacher. They may be certainly gifted of God with the gift of pastor teacher, but it hasn't developed enough. And so Paul will also say, not a new convert, lest they be conceited and fall into the snare of the evil one. And so you can't be a new convert and seek to become a senior pastor. Usually for a lot of people, they benefit if they are seeking an opportunity to pastor. They benefit first from maybe serving in some associate role uh, being mentored by someone, and that can go a long way. I just spoke last week to a, a brother from Eastern Kentucky, and uh, he found Search the Scriptures, and he's a medical salesperson. He sells, you know, medical equipment, I guess, to hospitals and the like. And but he's in an area where Paintsville, Kentucky. I wasn't familiar with that, um, but I remember it, and uh, it was in an area where a lot of churches are small, a lot of churches are closing. In fact, that's happening all over the nation. Some 50,000 churches have been projected to close, and they're closing, sadly, every week, every month. My wife and I were in Wells Beach, Maine, two years ago, and there were six churches in the town, uh, only one that was functioning, five that had already closed. And I think of places like that where, you know, that's sad that in that town, which is also a major tourist resort area, uh, that there's no visible outreach. Uh, and the church that was left open was not a good one. And one of the one of the buildings that had already been transformed into a gift shop. So there's a need is what I'm saying. And so this brother is like uh, learning books of the Bible through search the scriptures. And uh, I told him of some other things that he could really benefit from, like our basic discipleship course that's also available online. That would be a huge help to you. And then if you wanted to teach a book of the Bible, uh, you could work through some of the books that I've taught and buy some good commentaries that would also help. People say, well, I don't need commentaries. I just need the Holy Spirit. Well, you need the Holy Spirit, but if you say you don't need commentaries, then what you're saying is basically God can speak to me, but he can't speak to anyone else. 
and that's certainly not healthy and an accurate perspective. So I hope that helps get you started. Good question. Uh, feel free to call me um, and set up an appointment. I, I drive home 20 minutes every day, and almost every day I'm on the phone returning someone's call, and I can get 20 minutes of hopefully some good counseling along the way. Let's go to the next question. All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question comes in as a live dictation from Ophelia out of Savannah, Georgia. She writes, how do I know that God knows that I have faith in him and I trust him? I am going through difficult financial times, so I have not been able to give my tithe. Does he understand this? Well, uh, again, this becomes important in terms of, A, what the Bible says about tithing, and B, what faith is. Faith is based on Scripture. It's based on what God has revealed. And so many times people think, well, you know, tithing is the silver bullet, and if I just tithe, God is going to open the windows of heaven, and he's going to bless me, and I'll never have another need. Uh, But that's certainly not true. It's not accurate. And certainly when you teach tithing, it needs to be taught in the broader context of all that Scripture reveals about money. Uh, I have a course online. Again, this is at the Institute of Biblical Studies. It's called The Theology of Money. We look first at what the Bible says about stewardship. Then we look at what the Bible says about... So stewardship, let me just pause there. A steward acknowledges that it's not his time, it's not his money, it's not his spiritual gifts, his natural talents, that these are all given by God. And as a steward, we're those who are called to give an account. And so it's required of a steward that one be found faithful, Paul will write. And there's coming a day when our stewardship will be evaluated. We're actually studying that right now on Wednesday nights in a series I'm doing on developing an eternal perspective. And we're looking at the judgment seat of Christ or what sometimes we call the judgment of the just, where each one of us, speaking of believers, will give an account of himself to God. This is not the great white throne judgment where only lost people are present. This is the judgment of believers. And so stewardship evaluates how we have utilized what God has entrusted to us. We look at what the Bible says about debt, what the Bible says about giving, what the Bible says about saving, uh, what the Bible says about investing, what the Bible says about planning. It's a 130-page course that will walk you through a biblical theology. So, for instance, I don't know what got you into this mess where you can't tithe because you're robbing God. I don't know what got you into that mess. Maybe you were borrowing money that you had not yet earned, and that's a common American trait. Um, When you look at the average American family right now is $13,000 in credit card debt. Uh, that that's incredible. And when you think about the interest rates that they're charging in the upper 20s, it's costing you a huge amount of money. And basically, when we spend money that we don't have, we're in violation of Scripture. And so, and, and again, I'm, that's in reference to, uh, you know, what we call everyday needs that we need to trust God for. Uh, when you have a house you are certainly borrowing money, but it is quite different than borrowing money for a battery or a set of tires or to buy your groceries. Because A, to secure the house, you have to show that you're credit worthy. You have to put a certain percentage down and you agree that if you default on the house, they take your house. But then there's no debt incurred. Uh, Whereas when you 
make a promise, say, to uh, put something on your credit card and to pay it off, and it should be paid off in full every month. And again, on the course, we discuss how to do that. So if it were me, I would encourage you to tithe. Um, I would encourage you to tithe. If I had to eat hot dogs and spaghetti, I would tithe uh, if I got myself into this mess. If, I, if you had 10 pennies setting in front of you, and I asked you, could you give one penny to God? You'd say, of course I could. What's a penny? What if there's 10 $1 bills? I think so. How about if there's 10 $10 bills? Well, yeah, I could do that. How about 10 $100 bills? Well, that's a lot of money, Pastor. No, a tenth is a tenth is a tenth. So even the word tithe, people just use it generically to describe anything that they give to God. So more importantly, this caller from Savannah, you need to develop a theology of money. You need to have a budget. And so we will walk you through first the theology of money. And then we will, there's guys like Dave Ramsey. Okay, what they're doing is good. He's a believer, but there's no theological basis for it. I mean, I had one of his books. Maybe he's written more since then. And there was four verses of scripture in the whole book. And again, he's appealing to a secular audience. That's largely what his radio broadcast is geared towards. So he's not going to pack it with scripture. And we might call it pre-evangelism. Uh, and that he'll show, hey, what I'm getting is actually out of the Bible. But if you're trying to help a believer, you need to ground them deeply into Scripture. A, the tithing is even taught. There are people today who say, well, the tithe was just an Old Testament writing and has no application for today. I would say that's gross error. And even in a recent sermon I did in the prophet Malachi, I demonstrated that. But you want to learn what the Scripture says about money. You want to get on a budget so that when you get out of debt, you really don't have a plan, Ophelia, until you can tell me when you're going to be out of debt. And that's what this course will do for you. It will help you to think through so far that you'll be able to say, well, I'll be out of debt in March of 2026. That's a plan. That's a plan. And, and of course, we give some ways that will help motivate you to get out of debt. Do you have a, a smartphone? Well, why don't you go to a flip phone? One of those phones you just poke, you'll save a lot of money. Do you have cable? You don't need cable. We could start finding all kinds of leaks in your budget that would help you to begin to pay down that debt faster as you obey the Lord. Anyway, it's a short answer to a big problem, but there's a solution. Again, the theology of money, go to search the scriptures. By the way, those who are listening, if you're not following us and on YouTube, uh, it would be a big help because there's people like Ophelia, there's people across the nation who are finding us, but they'll find us faster and quicker and be helped if you go to search the scriptures and subscribe to our channel. That will get more people potentially finding our website and learning what God's truth says. And this is important in the day we live in where the Bible's being ignored. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question comes from Bonnie out of Bluffton, South Carolina. She writes, Erwin Lutzer, in a sermon entitled The Devil We Abhor, states that when one-third of the angels fell with Lucifer, two-thirds were preserved from from falling by divine decree. I've seen that fact. I haven't seen that fact about the two-thirds being preserved in the Bible. Where did I miss that? Thank you. 
Well, Erwin Lutzer is a fine Bible preacher. He's, he's taught in my own pulpit here at Community Bible Church in years past. And the thing I admire him is he's 81 years old and he's still running hard. And so you really have to appreciate that. He's not coasting and uh, just saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm just going to go to Florida and play shuffleboard. With that said, uh, you might want to consider, Bonnie, taking my course on angelology. Uh, angelos is the word for angel. Angelology is the study of angels, and it's broken into two halves, holy angels and fallen angels. You might even, if you just wanted a quick preview, uh, go to my series on Genesis and listen. I think it's the very first sermon in Genesis 3 where I deal with the fall of Satan. How did Satan end up in the garden? What was he doing there? Where did he come from? And when did he actually fall? And so the fall of Satan is found in two central passages, Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28. 14 times 2 is 28. And so that's easy to remember, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. Those are the two central passages that describe the fall of Satan. How did Lucifer, we think of the word Lucifer as kind of a dark term, and so we even use the adjective well, he's Luciferian in his lifestyle, meaning he's evil. But actually, the word Lucifer, which is actually um, a word, a Hebrew word that means morning star. And so the King James, uh, instead of interpreting the word, they just write the word, basically, Lucifer. But that's actually Satan's pre-fallen name. That was his holy name as an anointed cherub. But Again, we tend to think of it very negatively, but how did Lucifer become Satan? And there's about 30 terms that are used to describe the evil one. Uh, well, uh, he rebelled against God, and those two passages describe that. But interestingly, neither of those two Old Testament passages describe the number of angels that fell. So I turned here to Revelation chapter 12, and we read here... Um, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars, and she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Um, the, the revelation is filled with imagery, and there's an assumption as you read Revelation that you're familiar with the Old Testament. So much of the Old Testament unlocks the book of Revelation. I have 72 hours of preaching on the Revelation verse by verse, uh, you might want to just listen to this passage. But then the next verse says, then, and, and so by the way, this is a reference to Israel, and the imagery comes from Joseph and his encounter with his brothers and so forth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And again, the scripture interprets scripture. The great red dragon is Satan himself. We learn that just in this chapter, if you keep reading. In his tail, this great red dragon swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And so as it turns out, when Satan fell, one third of the angels fell with him, a third of the stars of heaven. And so there's different imagery that's given to describe the evil one and holy angels. And one of the uh, symbols for angels in Scripture is that they are stars. And there's so many of them, we don't know the exact number. We know in Revelation itself, in, in, in chapter 9, that there's 
um, 200 or 300 million angels that demons, fallen angels, that are let loose. And this is just a special class of angels that are released for a period of time. So there's potentially hundreds of millions of angels. And if God created, say, a billion angels, two-thirds are holy, one-third are fallen. And so, um, but we know there's much more than 300 million angels or demons from Revelation 9. This is just one group that are loose during the time of the Great Tribulation period. So these angels, and there's different classifications. There are some angels that have free to wreak havoc in the heavenly realms. Paul illustrates or speaks of it in Ephesians 6. He tells us our real battle is not against one another, flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Uh, You see it illustrated in Daniel, the 10th chapter, as there are holy and fallen angels warring with one another in the invisible realm. So there's that class of angel. There's, There's a class of angels that are in Tartarus, that are in eternal chains, never to be released. Uh, we cover this, of course, in my Genesis series in Genesis 6, when the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, cohabitated with the daughters of men. And you find this group of angels that had left the holy estate that God had called them to function in, and the estate that God even put parameters around for them as fallen angels. The devil can't do anything and everything he wants. As Luther used to say, the devil is God's devil. He's still on a leash. He's still under the control of Almighty God. And yet there was some of these angels that left that abode as fallen angels, and they cohabitated with the daughters of men. They're in a place called Tartarus. Peter says they are in eternal chains, never to be loose. There's another classification of angels that are in the abyss. Remember, even when Jesus encountered the two garrison demoniacs, a legion who was the uh, lead a demon pleaded that he might not send them into the abyss. Why? Because when you're in the abyss, you can't wage war in the heavenly realm. Though what you find in the Revelation is the key to the abyss is open, this bottomless pit. And uh, this, um, uh, this fallen leader, uh, Abaddon, or Apollon in Greek, is able to loose all these angels in the abyss for a period of time. And so there's all these different classifications of fallen angels. So um, that's where the number comes. It's found only in one place in Revelation 12. But how they fall, well, that's found in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. Again, that's the short answer. You might want to take the course in angelology and really do an in-depth study. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859. We're going to go to the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have Keith from Paintsville, Kentucky. Good morning, Keith. You are live with Pastor Carl. What is your question? Uh, good morning, uh, Dr. Brogy. I'm honored to speak with you. I've been listening to you for about two years, and and my education in the Bible has greatly improved. Um, Praise the Lord. That's great, I'm very Keith. thankful to you and your church and your ministry. Uh, my question, I'm calling also from Paintsville, Kentucky. I heard you speak about Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a yeah. pastor just called from me last week. He said it's in eastern Kentucky. I said, where are Paintsville? And so he's pastoring a church there, but go ahead. Yeah, that's, that's where I'm calling from the same place. Uh called you several times in the past. My question today is um, the state of our country, this, the, 
the power that uh, of Satan's grip in our country uh, as it is now. Do you see? Do you foresee uh, any revival or any coming back from the point we're at right now? Uh, hmm. Oh, that's a fantastic you feel, question. You feel we're we're, we're the judgment uh, that this country deserves is is what we're getting. And that, well, I would. Yeah, no, that's a twofold answer. I would give to you, Keith. Uh, number one, Romans one, it speaks of the wrath of God that is being revealed. There's different kinds of wrath, as you probably know. There's cataclysmic wrath, as we see in the Great Flood, as we see in the destruction of. Sodom and Gomorrah, which is kind of an immediate judgment for a period of time, and then it stops. There's uh, tribulational wrath that's still in front of us. It's in the future during the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, it's called in the Old Testament, because it will be troublesome for Israel. All the nations of the world will go against her. It's called a time of tribulation. It's called a time of great tribulation in the New Testament as tribulational wrath. There's eternal wrath. There is abiding wrath. Jesus spoke of the wrath of God abides on you. He that believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe the wrath of God abides on you. If you're lost, God's wrath is abiding on you. It's not like there's some future verdict. It's already on you. And he is going to uh, judge you eternally unless you turn to the Lord Jesus. If I knew that to be true, I couldn't go to sleep at night until I got that thing right. And then there is what we call the wrath of abandonment. And that's really what Romans 1 pictures. And that's what we're seeing. And really, not just in the United States, but it's happening across the planet in a multiplicity of countries. And it happens to a person. It happens to a nation when they suppress the truth that they know to be true about God. And so Paul says in Romans 1 that there are certain things that are obviously evidential. Man knows there's a God, and so biblically there's no such thing as an atheist. But he says here, for the wrath of God is. Here's a present tense expression of God's wrath. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. How so? Well, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And he speaks of the creation in Romans 2.15. He'll speak of the conscience. So there is evidence within and from without that God exists. And though they knew God, not in a personal way, like in John 17, when Jesus defines eternal life, but they knew of God's existence, They didn't honor him as God or give him thanks. And so they pretended, they professed to be really smart, but God said they actually became fools. And so God gave them over to sensuality three times over. God gave them over then to homosexuality. And then the third level, the deepest level, is God gave them over to a depraved mind. And then when he describes the third level, and by the way, this just parallels American history so, so closely. You know, the Scopes trial was really not, you know, um, a history teacher that was on trial, but the Word of God was on trial. Did God really say? Is the Genesis account correct? And sadly, William Jennings Bryan, who is a fine Christian, uh, couldn't defend 
the biblical truth very well, and they laughed at him, and they made a mockery of him. Uh, when where did Cain get his wife? And he stumbled. And how old is the earth? And he stumbled. And and so while he was a great politician and a committed Christian man, he didn't know his theology well. And so he didn't do a good job representing the evangelical picture. But evolution, even then, didn't really take root until the 1960s in America. And then it began to take root in grammar schools and high schools all across the nation. And it was a short throw thereafter when we said, well, God didn't create us. We evolved that we said there'd be no prayer, that there would be no Bible reading. Uh, then another law in Kentucky removed the Ten Commandments off the walls, and we had to put police in the halls as a result. And, and it's just been a downward progression. We saw the sexual revolution. Then we saw the homosexual revolution as we're in today. And now a depraved mind. And he says that people are filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, full of envy, murders, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips. They're slanderers. They're haters of God. They're insolent. They're arrogant. They're boastful. They're inventors of evil. They're disobedient to parents. And on. I mean, it's a downward spiral. And understand, even though we're seeing this in America and in nations across the world, there's still a restrainer who's at work, according to 2 Thessalonians 2. The Spirit of God is still restraining, still holding back the full force of evil through his presence in the church. But once the church is removed, oh, you haven't seen anything yet. That's when the birth pangs begin to take place, both physically in the creative realm and spiritually in the moral realm. And you wouldn't want to be alive during that time. And so do I think there's a revival? I think there could be a revival in Painesville, Kentucky. Do I think there could be a national revival? Well, I doubt it. You say, well, that's unbelief. Not really. It's consistent with what God has revealed. You say, well, what do you mean, Pastor Carl? Well, again, we are at a different, unique time in church history than we've ever been. Now, for those people who are replacement theologians, that is, those who say the church has replaced Israel, that God has no future for Israel— they're the ones who say, well, we're looking for this big revival to take place. They're very naive, and they're not thinking biblically. God said at the end of time, he said it through Moses, he said it through Isaiah, he said it through Ezekiel, he said it through Jeremiah, he said it through Daniel, he said it through a number of prophets, he would put the Jewish people back in the land. That's why we know we're in the final stage of human history. Now, no one knows the day or the hour. I was speaking to a group recently, and I said, well, suppose you knew you had 30 years left, 30 years, and then Jesus will come. Would you make your mortgage payment this month? Would you buy groceries? Would you quit your job? No, you would occupy until he came. You would continue to serve. And so there's that side of it because we don't know the day or the hour, but we know the season. And so associated with the season is not an upward spiral into righteousness, but a downward um, spiral into wickedness. And that's where the world is at. That doesn't mean we stop evangelizing because actually when you speak of revival, the greatest revival that has ever taken place in the history of the world is still in the future. It actually takes place after the church is raptured. And again, one of the functions of the tribulation period 
and this series of judgments that come in seals and trumpets and bowls is not just for God to say, gotcha. It's actually God's final wake-up call, God's alarm clock blasting to say eternity future is right on the cusp and you need to get right. And some people will, and God will use 144,000 Jewish evangelists. He'll use uh, two witnesses who I suspect will be Elijah and Moses, and even an angel. Angels have never preached the gospel ever in the history of mankind. But for the first time in human history, God will even use an angel to proclaim the gospel. And when you see the fruit of what takes place uh, in Revelation chapter 7, John sees this mass of people who come, he said, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they're crying out to God. These are people, we call them tribulation saints. They're not church saints, they're tribulation saints who have been saved during the tribulation through the witness of these, in this context, 144,000 And what happens to them? They're executed. So they're in heaven and they're crying out to the Lord and they're worshiping him and they're wondering how much longer before the Lord vindicates uh, their testimony and brings justice and finishes the whole plan because they don't know. And so uh, this is a revival. And this, by the way, is precisely what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is dealing with the birth pangs. People say, well, we're seeing the birth pangs today. You know, there's more earthquakes and tornadoes and famines. No, this is just the pregnancy. And I suspect it's near full term. Their birth pangs don't actually happen if you read Matthew 24, 4 through 14 carefully until the time of Jacob's trouble. What you read in 4 through 14 perfectly parallels the seal judgments in Revelation chapter 6. Then there's a mid-event in 2415, the abomination of desolation. Uh, Jesus puts it in the middle of the tribulation, as does John, as does the prophet Daniel, where the whole thought originates, right in the middle of the seven-year period. And then it goes from tribulation to great tribulation. But what we do read in Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So, you know, you have people today who saying, well, you know, we're trying to get the Bible in every language, and we should. We are to take the gospel to everyone. Tony Evans' transdispensationalism was actually a great stumbling block to the missionary movement. He said basically people could get saved in the light they had and go to heaven without believing in Jesus. That's heresy. That's why he's no longer on our station. That's heresy. That sucks all the air out of the missionary movement. Well, why bother? Why give people more light and make them potentially more guilty? Actually, Paul's argument in Romans is that all men have light. Therefore, no one can claim ignorance. And because no one can claim ignorance, no one can claim innocence, and all of us are guilty and in need of a Savior wherever we are, wherever we live. But what we've been trying to do uh, in this 20th and 21st century to get the gospel out to the whole, it's going to happen during the time of the tribulation. Look, I, I was in a family's home on Sunday night after the Iwana ministry and family from India, and we were talking about the languages, and I said, well, there's at least 750 languages in India. Uh, they spoke Telugu. 
Uh, they speak Hindi. They speak English. The two major languages are English and Hindu. But there's a lot of people in India that don't even know those languages. Some would say, well, there's more like 1,500 languages, and you start adding dialects, there's like 3,000. How are these people going to hear about Jesus? Well, we do everything we can. So would you like to know God as your friend booklet is in Telugu. It's in Hindi. And so people are hearing the gospel through that little presentation of the gospel. But what we can't do right now, God is going to pull off during the tribulation period. And so the greatest revival in the history of the world is still future. Now, with that said, some have falsely accused premillennialists with saying, well, it doesn't matter then, you know, basically, you know, grease the skids and bring in the second coming. That's wrong doctrine. We are still to be light. We're still to be salt. We're still to do everything that we can. I'm, I'm getting ready to vote early because I don't want to be in line on election day, and I've got a commitment on that day. But I'm going to vote. I should vote. I should vote my conscience. I should vote the best of whoever it may be available. And sometimes it's the lesser of two evils. Why? Because we want to act as salt and light, to slow back sin, again, to give us freedom. I'm called to pray for my president. I may not like my president, but God could care less if I like the president of the United States. I'm commanded to pray for him. Why? So that we might have freedom and a certain peace in order to preach the gospel, as Paul's argument is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So we still act as salt and light. We do all that we can. Uh, You should seek for a revival in Painesville in the sharing of the gospel, but you recognize there's coming a point where the whole thing is going to come undone and unglued. And I think we're in that season, and I think it's naive to think otherwise. Good question. I appreciate Keith so much. I wonder now if he's in the same church that that pastor called me from. Anyway, let's go to the next uh, question. All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question comes from John out of Roanoke, Virginia. He writes, when was sin created? It seems that sin entered the world through Adam, but it seems as though Satan was the first created being to have sinned, along with the angels that fell with him. I have been thinking about this, and in my reading this morning, I read Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, which talks about God not sparing the angels when they sinned. Thank you. Well, John, it's an excellent question. Appreciate you sending it in from Roanoke, Virginia. Um, I've just turned to Genesis. Let, let me just give some backdrop here. Uh, first of all, just for clarification, uh, when was sin created? Sin was never created uh, in the sense that God is the only creator, and everything that he created, the Scripture says, is good. So just to be precise in language, and I know what you mean, um, while sin was not created, it was allowed, and I think your question is when did sin begin and did it begin with Adam or with Satan? Well, obviously it began with Satan because Satan was already dealing with an unfallen person in the garden. And so if it began with Satan, when did it, um, when did it come into Satan's realm? Well, there's a couple of different views, actually three major views. One view is called the gap theory. And the argument is, and by the way, I cover this in my series on Genesis. There's so much in Genesis so much that we need to know. Oftentimes people say, well, if I had like two or three books that I really need to know, what do I need to learn? Genesis, Acts, and Romans. Those would be the three like most critical books that you could really learn. 
in Genesis, you find in kernel form really all the major doctrines that are unfolding in Scripture. So some say between Genesis 1 and Gen- Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, there's a gap. And they say that during that gap, God created the angels. That's why Satan was there in the garden. And uh, he uh, tempted Eve. They say that God made animals like dinosaurs. They say that uh, there was a caveman-type race that many say we evolved from, and so theistic evolution. Uh, but some put this gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Why do they do that? Because modern science has said that the world is, depending on who you read, somewhere around four to five billion years old. And so if you take the Bible at face value, the scripture would teach the the world is about 6,000 years old. And so you have some who say, well, I don't want to deny the creation account and I'm talking about non-theistic evolutionists who want to affirm the creation of man as a direct act of God, and yet they want to snuggle up to science and say, well, this world is millions and millions of years old. So they create this gap in order to try to harmonize the the facts of uh, what we read in Scripture and the genealogy accounts with uh, what we read in what we're taught in science. Uh, It's erroneous. It's basically man wanting to please God. It goes against the clear line of Scripture. It goes against what Scripture itself describes of itself. So the gap theory, I throw that out. A second view describes a different kind of gap. And again, I cover this in my series on Genesis, and they say there's a gap between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And by the way, I should say that there are some good, solid creationists who hold to this view. And so they would say that that, that the angels were also created in the first week before man, and they basically put the creation of the angels somewhere between Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Well, the problem with that is there's nothing in the Bible that says that. That's what we call not exegesis, where you read out the text, but you're reading into the text. But they, their argument from Genesis 1.31, which I have open here, it says, And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning was the sixth day. And so their argument is if everything God made was good, in fact, he'll pronounce it as very good at one point, then Satan was, or angels were already created, and, and they were created good because they were created of God. Angels are not eternal. They're created beings, clearly. Right? No, one, no one debates that. Again, the, the problem with that is uh, twofold. One, when you read, and this goes back to one of the earlier questions today, the fall of Satan in Isaiah 14 in Ezekiel chapter 28, there's a distinction when God describes angels between the creation of angels and the creation of the earth. So when God pronounces everything very good, and by the way, he pronounces a six-day creation, six literal 24-hour days with no long days in the long day theory or no gaps of time between the six 24 days of creation. How do you know that? Because God gives us divine commentary. 
in Exodus 20, when Moses reviews the creation of the world, he says, in six days, God created the, the heavens and the earth, and the seventh day he rested, and then he makes application. Even so, you should work six days, and then the seventh day, you should rest. And so, um, again, six-day literal creation, everything is good. But I think when God describes the creation of the heavens and the earth, he's not describing the third heaven. And in Hebrew, there's what we call a superlative. And so in the book of Nehemiah, he describes, uh, I've turned to Nehemiah 9 and verse 6. Nehemiah says, you alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts. Hosts here are referenced not to the stars, but to angels. Again, one of the uh, symbols used for angels. No one debates that. And the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, you give life to them, and the heavenly hosts bow down before you. So Nehemiah uses this additional phrase called the heaven of heavens. It's in Hebrew what we call a superlative, where you join a, a, nine, a noun with its own genitive and and it becomes a superlative. We use superlatives in, in English. We say, well, the Bible is the book of books, meaning it's the book of all books, the greatest book. Or, or even in Hebrew, in the ninth chapter of Genesis, Ham is, who's described as the father of Canaan, his, um, his offspring are going to be the slave of slaves, the lowest of slaves. Or even when Moses describes the tabernacle, he speaks of the holy of holies, meaning the most holy place. Or in the New Testament, we speak of the king of kings, meaning the greatest of all kings. And so when he speaks of the heaven of heavens, he's qualifying that this is not just the heavens and the earth that God created in those six days, but the third heaven. And by the way, the third heaven or the heaven of heavens in about seven or eight Old Testament passages that I bring out in my course on angelology is the place where you find the presence of God, holy angels. What I'm trying to say is that there's good evidence that the third heaven with all of its angels had already been created prior to the six days of creation. And I think Ezekiel 28 affirms that as does Isaiah chapter 14. So my take, by the way, Job is also interesting because in the book of Job, I suppose I should turn there. Let me turn there because I can't quote the verse out of memory. In Job chapter 38, God is responding to Job and he makes this statement in uh, verse uh, four, starting in verse four, were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, obviously he doesn't. Obviously he was not there when God laid the foundation of the earth. Who set its measurements since you know, or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, shouted for joy? Who's he speaking about? He's speaking about angels. So when God laid the foundations of the earth, according to the book of Job, the angels were already created. And so there is this angelic war that will later take place, a rebellion against God left led by this holy cherub named Lucifer, the morning star. He becomes Satan. He comes, becomes our adversary. We know him best as probably the devil. And uh, he rebels, and a third of the angels rebel with him. And that's why you find him in a perfect universe 
in the sense of the world that God has created that he's made Adam to live in, where he's able to to lure Adam and Eve into sin. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, Pastor Carl, we have about two minutes left. I think we have time for one more quick one. Um, From Nancy out of Greer, South Carolina, she would like to know if you are familiar with Chuck Meisler and was he a solid Bible teacher? Yeah, it's Chuck Meisler. Um, He's kind of an interesting guy. You know, talk about someone who'd never been to seminary and yet had a Bible education, basically self-studied, self-learned, um, he's somewhat controversial. I, he's Orthodox. He's a brother in Christ. You'll meet Chuck Missler in heaven. But he certainly delved into realms that I don't think the Scripture supported some of his views. So some of the things he said were good. He was certainly influenced largely under a pastor by the name of Chuck Smith, who in the 1960s uh, started the Calvary Chapel movement, and Chuck Missler fell under the teaching of Chuck Smith, and he himself lectured across the nation in different places. And uh, so I would, I would say, you know, the little I've heard of him, uh, most of it I agree with, but every once in a while something will come up on YouTube and some position that Chuck Missler taught, and I thought, man, that, that's really pretty beyond the bounds of Scripture, eisegesis. It makes for good fodder. It makes for good clickbait. It makes for uh, filling seats, but not always accurate. So you got to be careful. So again, I I don't want to dismiss him. He's a fine brother in Christ who went to heaven some years ago. Uh, But certainly, I don't know of anyone that you would hear on WAGP that would agree with everything that he said. Basic discipleship tomorrow at Community Bible Church. We are looking at how to develop an eternal perspective. If you don't have a place to go, it will be at 630. You know, there's coming a time when each one of us will give an account of himself to the Lord. And God will evaluate our life lived as a believer. We spoke of this earlier in the program about stewardship. And so listen, every Christian who goes to heaven is going to go to a marvelous place. But heaven will not be the same for every Christian. Anyone who goes to hell will go to a place of horror. But in the perfect justice of God, based on a number of passages in the gospel, even in Romans and in the Revelation, hell won't be the same for everyone. In the perfect justice of God, it will be worse for some than for others. And heaven and eternity won't be the same for everyone. There are some Christians who are more faithful in their walk with Christ and using their gifts, their abilities. And so we're examining that. How do I avail myself to lay up treasure in heaven? What does really eternal treasure look like? And how do I make a difference? So tomorrow night, 6.30, Community Bible Church. If you live in another state, you can live stream us at communitybiblechurch.us on Apple, on Roku, on Sermon Audio, on Facebook, and a number of other realms. And again, if you haven't subscribed to Search the Scriptures at YouTube, go and do that. That will help me a lot. God bless you as you walk with Christ. 